So the question from this morning that I couldn't read, meditation is like taking a rocket into space and seeing and experiencing where you've been. Yeah, okay, all right. Getting a different perspective on things. Can the jhanas be practiced lying down if you're not drowsy? Yes. I personally have found it harder to get into the jhanas, harder to generate access concentration. My mind seems to be kind of wavery when I'm lying down, much more easily distracted in a sort of lazy, sloppy way. But yes, I've been in the jhanas while lying down, so it's quite possible. And then the one from last night. Is there a Theravadan equivalent of sunyata? I understand and feel the non-self aspect of life, but the concept of non-self begs the question, is there a non-everything? Yes. Uh, I thought sunyata emptiness uh, provided this concept. Yes, that's correct. Uh, as I say, is that in the Theravada? Yes, it's in the Theravada right from the get-go. There's a famous chant that the monks will do that comes from the suttas, and it says, all sankharas are impermanent. So all concoctions, all created things are impermanent. All sankharas are dukkha. No created thing is going to give you lasting satisfaction. And all dhammas, all phenomena, are without self. Now, if you take all, I mean, I'm a phenomena, the table is a phenomena, you're a phenomena. I'm a sankara, you're a sankara, they're a sankara, right? right? So if you take all the phenomena and you subtract out all the sankaras... What have you got left? Nibbana. Right? So even Nibbana is without self. We'll get to that. Right? It's not impermanent and it's not dukkha, but there's no self there. <clears> then <throat> there's an interesting sutta in the connected discourses, the thematic discourses the Samyutta Nikaya, in Book 12. Book 12 is on dependent origination. Like I said, some 95 suttas on dependent origination. This is the 15th sutta, the Katyanagota Sutta. Thus have I heard, once the Buddha was living at Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anatapindika's Park. And then the venerable Katyanagota approached the Blessed One paid homage to him, and sat down at one side. So this is the venerable Katyanagota. This is not some monk or the monk so-and-so. This is obviously someone who is fairly experienced. So the teaching we're not going to get is a beginner's teaching. This is a teaching for an experienced practitioner. And then the Venerable Katyana Gota said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, 
It is said, right view, right view. In what way, venerable sir, is there right view? This world, Katyana, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. Okay, so the notion that things actually exist. There's really a table, and most importantly, there's really a me. Or that things don't really exist. The table is just a construct, or I'm just a construct. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is, with correct wisdom, there's no notion of non-existence with regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is, with correct wisdom, there's no notion of existence with regard to the world. Okay, if you pay attention and you watch all of the things that arise in this world, you don't think there's nothing there. You're seeing all this stuff coming. But if you look carefully at the cessation of the world, how everything goes away, disappears, then you don't think that everything is eternal, that it has an essence that lasts forever. This world, Katyana, is for the most part shackled by engagement, clinging, and adherence. In other words, most people are shackled by their views and their opinions. But one with right view does not become entangled and cling through that engagement and clinging, mental standpoint, adherence, underlying tendency. One with right view does not take a stand about myself. Now, this is quite interesting. The Buddha is not saying there's a self. He's not saying there's not a self. He's saying one with right view doesn't take a stand about whether there's a self or not a self. Now that's rather curious. So, when the fire goes out, does it go up or down? Come on. Do you have an opinion? Right? Okay, so basically... What the Buddha is saying is that having opinion about whether there's a self or whether there's not a self is like having an opinion about whether the fire goes up when it goes out or goes down when it goes out. doesn't make any sense when you understand what's really happening. One with right view has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only dukkha arising. And what ceases is only dukkha ceasing. All right? So what arises? Well, sankharas, concoctions, things that are constructed, things that are made. And what ceases? Well, all that arises ceases. All the constructions, all the concoctions cease. Remember I started with the three things? Sankaras are impermanent, dukkha and phenomena is without a self. So what's arising are sankaras and they're dukkha. <clears throat> they're bummers if you crave them, in other words. And what ceases is sankaras and they're bummers if you're craving for them not to cease. 
One with right view has knowledge about this that is independent of others. In other words, he's experienced this for himself. He's not believing this because somebody else told him or even the Buddha told him. In this way, Katyana, that there is right view. And it is in this way, Katyana, that there is right view. All exists, Katyana. This is one extreme. All does not exist. This is the second extreme. So all exist is the mistake of eternalism. Right? There's an inherent existence. There's a part of me that's going to be here forever and is going to eventually get totally happy. Eternalism. The extreme being everything has an eternal existence. All does not exist is annihilationism or nihilism. There's nothing here at all but this body, and when it dies, that's it. Nothing left. In fact, the whole world, you know, it all is just going to go. But that's the other extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, a Tathagata, a fully enlightened one, teaches the Dhamma by the middle, Paticca Samupada, dependent arising. Don't look at the world in terms of entities that exist or don't exist or will last forever or will be destroyed. Look at the world in terms of streams of dependently originated phenomena interacting with each other. That's all there is. So this is another teaching on the middle way. So what happens when I die? Well, what is this I that dies? All right? Is it an entity that's going to be destroyed or is it an entity that's going to go on? It's not an entity, right? They're just these streams of dependently originated phenomena that interact with each other and produce what we basically call sankharas, concoctions. The number one concoction in everybody's mind in this room is the sense of self. But it's just a concoction. It's just arising as a result of streams of dependently originated phenomena interacting. So the Buddha died somewhere around 400 BCE. And about 500 years later, around 100 CE or 100 AD, in southern India, a man named Nagarjuna, you British call him Nagarjuna, but I ask an Indian how to pronounce his name. A man named Nagarjuna was born at the foot of an Arjuna tree. He was born in a Brahmin family, and by the time he was 20, he was quite skilled in all the Brahmin lore and teachings. But he had a sensuous side, and he and three friends 
learn from a sorcerer how to make themselves invisible. Then they snuck into the king's palace, into the harem quarters, and enjoyed themselves. When the king found out about this, he stationed soldiers behind the curtains. And when Nargajuna and his friends returned, the king had the soldiers strike above the footprints in the carpets. Nargajuna's three friends were killed. Nargajuna only escaped because he was smart enough to stand next to the king. He managed to get out of the palace and fled to the hills. He had discovered craving causes dukkha. He began studying the works of the Buddha, and it says in three months he completely mastered the early texts. But he found they didn't really answer his deepest questions. At that point, he encountered an old monk who practiced in the Mahayana tradition. Mahayana Buddhism was a newly emergent stream of thought. It was basically appearing because as a reaction to the monks who were spending all of their time in the woods working on their own enlightenment, and the Mahayanas felt they were not taking care of the problems of the world, that they were not acting with compassion, being very selfish, seeking their own enlightenment. So the Mahayana tradition had a greater emphasis on compassion, and in particular, (coughs) the idea of a bodhisattva, one who practices to gain enlightenment to be able to help others. Nagarjuna was sufficiently impressed by this vision that he left his mountain hideaway and began traveling throughout India to find other Mahayana texts. He studied them. He was quite good at debate. He took on all challengers and defeated them all. Eventually, he said, I have no master. He founded an order of monks and rules for them to live by. It is said at this point, some Nagas, some uh, mythical sea serpents, had compassion for Nagarjuna and took him to the bed of a lake where the Buddha's Prajma Paramita Sutras had been stored. These were wisdom discourses between the Buddha and some of his prominent disciples and some bodhisattvas on the deeper teachings that were too esoteric for the people that lived at the time of the Buddha. But the Mahayanas felt that these teachings were now ready to be proclaimed and the Nagas felt that Nagarjuna was the man to proclaim them. So they entrusted these Prajma Paramita Sutras to Nagarjuna, and he brought them back to the human realm. Among the more famous of the Prajma Paramita Sutras is the Heart Sutra and the Diamond Cutter Sutra. These sutras have a great deal of emphasis on emptiness, shunyata. Nagarjuna when he returned to the human realm, wrote several commentaries to these sutras. And one of them is the Mulama Yamaka Karika, 
which would be literally translated as the fundamental verses on the middle way. This is a translation by Stephen Batchelor. He translated it, verses from the center. It is said that a king was quite impressed with Nargajuna and arranged for a contest of magic between Nargajuna and a Brahmin scholar. The Brahmin scholar created a lake and a lotus throne in the middle of the lake upon which he sat and mocked Nargajuna for being stranded on dry land like an ox. Nargajuna conjured up a white elephant that waded into the lake and tossed the Brahmin scholar back on dry land. The Brahmin scholar admitted defeat, but wished that Nargajuna was dead. Nargajuna locked himself in his room. The next day, a worried disciple broke down the door. A cicada flew out. The room was empty. At least that's the story that's going around. For sure, somebody wrote the Mulamayamaka Karika. It's assigned to a person named Nargajuna. All we really know about him is he had a great respect for the teachings of the Buddha. His dedication in this work is to the Buddha, and he does mention a sutta by name, the Katyana Gota Sutta, the one I just read you. He also mentions a Mahayana Sutta by name. And what he has here is basically a set of debate notes. It's not a polished treatise. It's rather difficult going, actually. Difficult enough that when I give this talk, I feel compelled to say, <clears throat> I'm going to put something out here. Uh, it's going to be kind of difficult to follow. If you follow it, hopefully it's useful. If you don't follow it, don't worry about it. I mean, you know, I'll put it out and see what happens. Okay? Uh, these 27 chapters or poems, they're not really poetry, try to give a sense of emptiness and the role that plays in the Buddha's teachings. By the time that Nagarjuna came around, Theravadan Buddhism had taken really on, the mainstream was the Abhidhamma, a deconstruction of the Buddhist ideas, a cataloging of all possible mental states, Whereas in the suttas, you find lists of four things, five things, seven things, 12 things. In the Abhidhamma, you find lists of 80 things and 108 things. They got into the list big time. Nargajuna felt that they had misunderstood what the Buddha was saying. And we could make a much better argument that the Mulamayamaka Karika is a correction of mainstream Buddhism in the first century AD back towards what the Buddha was actually teaching rather than being the founding, uh, part of the founding of Mahayana Buddhism. But nonetheless, the teachings in here on emptiness certainly play a pivotal role in the founding of Mahayana Buddhism. 
And I think they get back very much to what the Buddha is teaching. The argument has been made that actually Nagarjuna wasn't even a Mahayanist, that he was a Theravadan who was trying to correct the Theravadan teachings. Whatever, I think he very definitely captured what the Buddha was saying and managed to say it in his own voice uh, in a way that really deepens what the Buddha was trying to say when he was talking about emptiness. So what I want to do is read you a few of these and see if you can get a sense of emptiness. Now, the emptiness doesn't refer to things not existing or not being there. It's saying that things are empty of any essence, empty of inherent existence. Basically, it's going to wind up saying that everything is empty because they're just streams of dependently originated phenomena coming together and interacting. That's all that you can find. The first of these is walking. I do not walk between the step already taken and the one I'm yet to take, which both are motionless. Is walking not the motion between one step and the next? What moves between them? Could I not move as I walk? If I move when I walk, there would be two motions, one moving me and one my feet. Two of us stroll by. There is no walking without walkers and no walkers without walking. Can I say that walkers walk? Couldn't I say they don't? Walking does not start in steps taken or to come or in the act itself. Where does it begin? Before I raise a foot, is there motion, a step taken or to come, whence walking could begin? What has gone? What moves? What is to come? Can I speak of walkers when neither walking, steps taken, nor to come ever end? Were walking and walker one, I would be unable to tell them apart. Were they different, there would be walkers who do not walk. These moving feet reveal a walker, but did not start him on his way. There was no walker prior to departure. Who was going where? So, were walking and walkers one, I would be unable to tell them apart. So, walking is not the same as someone who walks. But if they're different, there would be walkers who do not walk. They may be not the same, but they're not different either. The two are mutually interdependent, right? The act of walking reveals both a walker and the walking itself. When someone is a walker, they have generated walking. So these two things we think are separate. They're different ideas. One is a noun, one is a verb. 
but they're very much interrelated. The next one is seeing. If my eyes cannot see themselves, how can they see something else? Were there no trace of something seen, how could I see it all? Neither seeing nor unseeing see. Seeing reveals a seer who is neither detached nor undetached from seeing. How could you see and what would you see in the absence of a seer? Just as a child is born from mother and father, so consciousness springs from eyes and colorful shapes. With these, uh, without these eyes, how could I know consciousness, contact, feeling and craving, clinging, becoming, birth, aging, and death? Seers seeing sights explain hearers hearing sounds, smellers smelling smells, tasters tasting tastes, touchers touching textures, thinkers thinking thoughts. So seeing reveals a seer who is neither detached nor undetached from seeing. You can't see without having a seer, and the seeing basically requires that there be a seer. The two don't exist independent of each other, even though we have different concepts. As an aside, quantum physics has discovered that the particles that make up the protons, neutrons, electrons of an atom, which are called quarks, uh, don't exist by themselves. You can never find a single quark. There's always a quark and a gluon. No, there's always a quark and another quark, or a quark and a gluon and a quark but you can never have one without the other, just like you can't have seeing without a seer. Seems the universe is put together even at the most basic level via processes interacting. Body. I have no body apart from the parts which form it. I know no parts apart from a body. A body with no parts would be unformed. A part of my body apart from my body would be absurd. Were the body here or not, it would need no parts. Partless bodies are pointless. Do not get stuck in the body. I cannot say my body is like its parts. I cannot say it's something else. Vedana, perceptions, drives, minds, things are like this body in every way. Conflict with emptiness is no conflict. Objections to emptiness, no objections. Were the body here or not, it would need no parts. If the body had an essence, then it wouldn't depend on the parts to make it. Right? I mean, if you have a body and you pull all the parts off, you no longer have a body. But if it had a real essence there, you pull all the parts off, you'd still have the essence of the body. But we don't find that. 
Partless bodies are pointless. I mean, you just don't find a body without any parts. So do not get stuck in the idea of the body. Do not get stuck thinking that the body is a independently, inherently existing entity. The next one is self. Were mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. If I were something else, they would say nothing about me. What is mine when there is no me? Were self-centeredness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think them. What is inside is me, what is outside is mine. When these thoughts in, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Fixation spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops fixations. Buddhas speak of self and also teach no self and also say there's nothing which is either self or not. When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and unceasing are already free. The Buddha said it is real and it is unreal, and it is both real and unreal, and it's neither one nor the other. It is all at ease, unfixable by fixations, incommunicable, inconceivable, indivisible. You are not the same as or different from conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. When Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. This might be worth reading a second time. Were mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. So you change out all of your cells every seven years. So if your body, your cells was you, does that mean you're somebody different than you were seven years ago? And if so, where did that person from seven years ago wind up? And your mind, boy, you change that a lot more often than you change your cells. So they come and go pretty rapidly, but that sense of me, that sticks around. But if I were something else, then my mind and my matter would say nothing about me. Seems to be some sort of uh, interrelated phenomena. What is mine when there is no me? Were self-centeredness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think them. So this is what the Buddha's teaching on not-self is about. It's an attempt to get you to see in a way so that you're not conceiving of me and mine. The Buddha said nothing whatsoever should be conceived of as me or mine. If you arrive at that point, then the self-centeredness is eased. And there's no craving and clinging. you got to have a self to want it and hang on to it 
in order to have the craving and clinging. If you overcome the craver, the clinger, there's no more dukkha. What's inside is me, what's outside is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. So instead of looking at the world as me and mine, try and see it, well, as dreams of dependently originated phenomena. See it in a way where you're not doing the craving and clinging. Fixations spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops fixations. Fixations is Stephen Batchelor's translation of the Pali word and the Sanskrit word papancha. Papancha means mental proliferation. You might have experienced that at some point time recently, you know. Some idea comes up and it just goes on and on and on and on. You can't get it to shut up and finally you get it to shut up and then something else comes up and it goes on and on. An example, a woman asked her husband to go to the market and buy some potatoes. Yes, dear. So he stands up. He's just ready to head out the door. And she says, and be sure and get a good price. Yes, dear. So he heads towards the market. And all the while he's thinking, yeah, she probably wants me to get good potatoes as well. I mean, you can get bad potatoes for a good price. And you can get good potatoes for a bad price. But getting... Good potatoes for a good price, that's difficult. You've got to watch those potato sellers. They'll, they'll put good potatoes on top, and then they'll put bad potatoes on the bottom. And you get cheated that way. Sometimes they put in a rotten potato. Oh, I hate the smell of rotten potatoes. At that point, he arrives at the market, walks up to the potato seller and says, keep your rotten potatoes, and walks away. <laughs> that's papancha. We do this all the time. All right? So... Papancha spawns thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. You get some idea in your mind and you just run with it and then you act on that. I mean, if you thought it up, it must be true. Well, not necessarily. Emptiness stops papancha. When you can see the empty nature of things, particularly if you can get all the way to not conceiving of me and mine, then the papancha stops and you're not acting compulsively, not acting in a way that produces dukkha. Buddhists speak of self and also teach no self and also say there's nothing which is either self or not. So some of the Buddhist teachings are on the relative level. For example, metta practice, the Brahma-vihara practices. There are selves. You are to send metta to yourself. You're to send metta to other individuals. Okay? So there are selves there from a relative viewpoint. And also teach no self. Right? Look at it. There's not any self to be found. We had this yesterday in the teaching on the five aggregates, right? The Buddha says... Monks, is material matter permanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is it sukha or dukkha? Dukkha, venerable sir. Is it correct to regard something that is impermanent and dukkha and changing as yourself? No, venerable sir. So he's teaching no self. And also 
says there's nothing which is either self or not. In the sutta I just read you, the Buddha's basically refusing to commit to self or not self. Remember, one with right view does not take a stand on whether, uh, does not take a stand about myself, does not take a stand on whether there's a self or whether there's no self, right? One with right view looks at the world in terms of dependently originated phenomena. When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and unceasing are already free. If you can get past the idea of entities, then things dissolve, right? Things aren't being created and they're not ceasing. The unborn and unceasing are already free. If you look at the world in terms of streams of dependently originated phenomena, you're not looking at the world in terms of entities coming into being and ceasing. It's just all these processes interrelating. The Buddha said it is real and it is unreal and it is both real and unreal and it's neither one or the other. It depended on who he was talking to and what sort of teaching he felt he could give them. It is all at ease, unfixable by fixations. In other words, no amount of papancha is going to help you figure out what's going on. It's all at ease. What you need to do is step back, get quiet, and see that it's all at ease. Incommunicatable, inconceivable, indivisible. You're not going to be able to explain it in terms of separate entities, because there aren't any separate entities, right? All that there are are, yeah, you know, right? So don't go conceiving separate things. And the streams of phenomena coming together are interconnected. They're not divided into my streams and your streams, right? It's all really interconnected. It's indivisible. And now I think something that's really quite important to understand. You are not the same as or different from conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. This is the heart of the matter. There are conditions upon which you depend, right? Things that have come to make you who you are. Everything from your genetic material to the food you eat to the family of origin to the education you have to the air you breathe. I mean, we could just go on and on. But you are not the same as these things, nor are you different from them. You are neither forever severed from them nor fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. When Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. This is kind of interesting. You would think perhaps that the Nagarjuna might talk about the Bodhisattva here, but what he's talking about is a self-awakened being, a Pacheka Buddha, 
someone who finds the way to enlightenment but doesn't teach. So uh, it seems that he's really looking at the spiritual path of finding awakening, even if there aren't any Buddhas around and their disciples have messed it up and gone in the wrong direction. The wisdom of how the world actually works is there for someone to find if they'll just take a close look. Another one here. This one is the analysis of the Four Noble Truths. This particular one begins with a critic complaining that Nargajuna is corrupting the Dhamma, corrupting it by teaching emptiness. This critic has misunderstood emptiness and thinks it's nihilism, thinks that emptiness means things don't exist, which of course is not what Nargajuna is saying. Nargajuna replies, The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. Misperceiving emptiness injures the unintelligent like mishandling a snake or miscasting a spell. The Buddha despaired of teaching the Dhamma, knowing it hard to intuit its depths. Your muddled conclusions do not affect emptiness. Your denial of emptiness does not affect me. When emptiness is possible, everything is possible. Were emptiness impossible, nothing would be possible. In projecting your faults onto me, you forget the horse you are riding. To see everything existing by nature is to see them without causes or conditions, thus subverting causality, agents, tools and acts, starting, stopping, and ripening. Dependent origination is emptiness, which dependently configured is the middle way. Everything is dependently originated. Everything is empty. Were everything not empty, there would be no rising and passing. Ennobling truths would not exist. Without dependent origination, how could I suffer dukkha? This shifting dukkha has no nature of its own. If it did, how could it have a cause? Deny emptiness and you deny the origins of dukkha. If dukkha existed by nature, how could it ever cease? Absolute dukkha would never stop. How could you cultivate a path that existed by nature? How could it lead to the end of dukkha? A path on which you tread can have no essence of its own. If confusion existed by nature, I would always be confused. How could I know anything? Letting go and realizing cultivation and fruition could never happen. Who can attain absolute goals that by nature are unattainable? Since no one could attain them, there would be no sangha. 
With no truths, no dharma either. With no sangha or dharma, how could I awaken? I would not depend on awakening nor awakening on me. A naturally unawakened person would never awaken, no matter how hard he practiced for its sake. He would never do good or evil. An unempty person would do nothing. He'd experience the fruits of good and evil without having done good or evil deeds. How can fruits of good and evil not be empty if they are experienced? To subvert emptiness and dependent origination is to subvert conventions of the world. It engenders passivity. Acts without an author, authors who do not act. Beings would not be born or die. They would be frozen in time, alien to variety. If things were unempty, you could attain nothing. Dukkha would never end. You would never let go of compulsive acts. To see dependent origination is to see dukkha, its origin, cessations, and the path. I think maybe I should reread that one as well. Okay. The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths. Partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. So this is the teaching of the two truths. Partial truths of the world. The literal Sanskrit is truths which do not fully disclose. They don't fully explain what's going on. It's true there's 40 people sitting in this room, but that doesn't fully explain what's going on. And then there are truths which are sublime, the ultimate truths. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. In other words, you do need to be able to distinguish between the relative and the absolute. They are just different perspectives, however. It's not there's a relative reality and an ultimate reality. There are different perspectives on the reality. Some perspectives are easier to see, but they don't fully disclose what's happening. Some are a bit more sublime and more difficult to see. You need to know the difference. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without using relative speech, you cannot disclose the ultimate truths. Without a finger pointing at the moon, you're not likely to see the moon. But as they say, don't confuse the finger with the moon. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. So these two truths, these two perspectives, they're both required. You need the relative perspective the next time you cross the street. If you don't look both ways, you get run down by a bus. And it doesn't do you any good to go, oh, the bus is empty, right? You just get run down, right? So you've got to operate in the relative world. But the truths of the relative world are not sufficient to bring you to liberation. For that, you need the ultimate truths, the truths which are sublime. And they're to be intuited. They're so sublime they can't actually be described There can only be fingers pointing at them, and hopefully you can look where the fingers are pointing and intuit it, have the understood experience of 
the emptiness of self and the phenomenal world. Misperceiving emptiness injures the unintelligent, like you, Mr. Critic, like mishandling a snake or miscasting a spell. The Buddha despaired of teaching the Dharma, knowing it hard to intuit its depths. Your muddled conclusions do not affect emptiness. Your denial of emptiness does not affect me. In other words, Nagarjuna is saying to his critic, the Buddha only was teaching to those who have little dust in their eyes, and you've got a whole sandstorm in your eyes. He was hard. You can see why he won his debates. When emptiness is possible, everything is possible. Were emptiness impossible, nothing would be possible. Now, the critic in his complaint has said that emptiness makes everything impossible, and Nagarjuna is saying, no, 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 you got it backwards. Because things are empty, they have the capacity to change. If things were unempty, they would have an essence, and that essence would always be there, unchanging. Things would be stuck. But because things are unempty, because there's only these streams of dependently originated phenomena bumping into each other, then it's possible for change to take place. Things are possible. In projecting your faults onto me, you forget the horse you are riding. This is a story of an Indian who had uh, two dozen horses. And he goes out one morning and he mounts up one of his horses and he starts counting them. One, two, three, four, twenty-two, twenty-three. Oh no, someone's stolen one of my horses. Because he forgets to count the horse he's riding. To see things existing by nature is to see them without causes or conditions. So if things have an essence, if they're unempty, then they're uncaused. They're just there. Their essence is there. If, if they change, then they don't have an essence. If this was a table, really a genuine table, and I ripped the legs off and threw it in the fireplace and burned it up, where'd the table go, right? It doesn't have an essence, Seeing things this way subverts causality, agents, tools, and acts, starting, stopping, and ripening. And then the whole heart of Nagarjuna's teaching. Dependent origination is emptiness, which dependently configured is the middle way. Now, this translation doesn't really bring it out, but what Nagarjuna is saying here is that emptiness is also empty. Don't go making an absolute out of emptiness. It's just a relative thing as well. It's an idea to help us see what's going on. But it too, the idea of emptiness, has its causes and conditions. Everything is dependently originated. Everything is empty. So, emptiness in the Mahayana sense means the same thing as dependent origination in the Theravadan sense. They're identical. The Mahayana's got a little more elaborate in explaining it, but as we can see, the roots of that go back to the Katyanagota Sutta, to the Buddha himself. Were everything not empty, there would be no rising and passing. Ennobling truths would not exist. 
Without dependent origination, how would I suffer dukkha? So we had that. The origins of dukkha are explained through dependent origination. This shifting dukkha has no nature of its own. If it did, how could it have a cause? Deny emptiness and you deny the origins of dukkha. So you better hope that dukkha is caused, right? Because if it's uncaused, that means it's always there. And if you're experiencing dukkha now, you're stuck with it forever. If dukkha existed by nature, how could it ever cease? Absolute dukkha could not stop. How could you cultivate a path that existed by nature? How could it lead to the end of dukkha? So there's the path of practice, and if it were an absolute thing, and you're not on it, well, then you're stuck not being on it. A path on which you tread can have no essence of its own. If you walk a path through the forest, what you're doing is walking through the places where there's no forest. I mean, it's empty in the traditional sense. If confusion existed by nature, I would always be confused, right? If, it ha- if confusion was a non-empty thing, then it would be there. It wouldn't have been caused and it wouldn't go away. How could I know anything? Letting go and realizing cultivation and fruition could never happen. Who can attain absolute goals that by their nature are unattainable? So if you're not enlightened right now, and enlightenment was not empty, it would never change. And uh, since enlightenment doesn't contain you, it would never contain you. You'd be stuck on the outside forever. Since no one could attain them, there would be no sangha. With no truths, no dharma either. With no sangha or dharma, how could I waken? I would not depend on awakening nor awakening on me. They would be basically stuck in different realms. The realm of the absolute total enlightenment that doesn't contain you and you stuck over here, unable to get there. A naturally unawakened person would never awaken no matter how hard he practiced for its sake. He would never do good or evil. An unempty person would do nothing. He'd experience the fruits of good and evil without ever having done good or evil deeds. How can fruits of good and evil not be empty if they're experienced? Karma doesn't work. Karma and its resultants doesn't work if things are stuck in any sort of way. Changes have to take place for this to happen. To subvert emptiness and dependent origination is to subvert conventions of the world. It engenders passivity, acts without an author, and authors who do not act. Beings would not be born or die. They would be frozen in time, alien to variety. If things weren't empty, you'd be stuck like you are forever. Better hope you were in a good mood when that happened. If things were unempty, you could attain nothing. Dukkha would never end. You would never let go of compulsive acts. So if it was unempty and you were experiencing dukkha, the essence of you would be that you were experiencing dukkha, and that's the way it would be forever. Better hope it's empty. 
To see dependent origination is to see dukkha, its origins, cessation, and the path. The one that follows this is Nagarjuna's teachings on nirvana, nibbana in Pali. I'm not going to read the whole thing. There's just this very interesting paragraph here. Samsara is no different from nirvana. Nirvana is no different than samsara. Samsara's horizons are the same as nirvana's. The two are exactly the same. This is the famous equating samsara and nirvana. What Nargajuna is saying is this is nirvana. This is nibbana. But you need to see it from the perspective of the Buddha. If you see it from an unenlightened perspective, a perspective of selves and possessions and cravings and clingings, it's dukkha, it's samsara. But if you can shift your perspective to where you're seeing without conceiving of me and mine, no selves, no possessions, no cravings, no clinging, it's exactly this, but there's no dukkha. So this is my understanding of emptiness. This book by Stephen Batchelor is not a accurate translation of the Mulamayamaka Karayika. It's a poetic translation, but it does make the teachings much more easy to approach. I would suggest that if you're interested in pursuing emptiness further, get a copy of this book, read it a half a dozen times, you feel like you're beginning to make sense of it. And then you could try a more literal translation, something like J. Car- Garfield's Fundamental Wisdom of the Middle Way. It's a bit tough going, but it's actually quite good. And of course, this is on my reading list. Verses from the Center by Stephen Batchelor. Questions? I don't say that without trepidation. <laughs> I don't know, because if I really understood it, I'd be fully enlightened. Someone, there's a sutta number 15 in the long discourses where Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, comes to the Buddha and says, Venerable sir, this dependent origination seems deep and profound, but I understand it as clear as clear can be. And the Buddha says, do not say so, Ananda. This dependent origination is deep and profound, but it's by not penetrating it that this generation is entangled in all this dukkha. As I keep studying dependent origination, I keep learning more and more and more. Uh, I've been working on it since I started meditating, you know, 25 years ago. Um, I find it the richest vein I've mined in all of the Buddha's teachings. And, you know, I learned something this week of even more about it. So, yeah. Uh, How long does it take? Well, I guess as long as until you get enlightened. Uh, I 
Yes. Does defendant origination travel into consciousness? Yes. The, one, one of the things that is most interesting about quantum physics is that the observer is very much a part of what's going on, right? It's the interaction between the observer and the observed that sometimes determine what is observed. In other words, there's a dependent uh, relationship between the observer and the observed. One example, right? Uh, dependent origination is basically taking the view of reality out of the ideas of entities into a more process-oriented view of reality. There are processes that are interacting. This is very much what quantum mechanics is talking about. So, yeah, I think the two fit well. There's a book that has just been published that I haven't read, and I suspect it has some information on that. And I actually have some cards from the author. I will put them in the library tomorrow when there's the book sale, so if people are interested in picking up the cards to take a look at it. But I haven't read the book, so I don't know. I did just recently read uh, an article entitled Buddhism and Quantum Mechanics or Quantum Physics. And it didn't explicitly go into dependent origination, but there was some stuff there. Uh, you could probably get away with doing a PhD thesis on it. So. The Heart Sutra and the Diamond Sutra, I think, are two of the most important teachings in Buddhism. They both have uh, just a really brilliant take on emptiness. Uh, neither one is particularly easy to understand. The Heart Sutra is famous for saying, <clears throat> form is emptiness and emptiness is form, right? Right? But did you know it also says Vedana is emptiness, emptiness are Vedana. Perceptions are emptiness, emptiness is perceptions. Sankaras are emptiness, emptiness is Sankaras. Consciousness is emptiness, emptiness is consciousness. In other words, all five aggregates are empty and emptiness is the same as the five aggregates. Uh, it ends with the chant of gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha, which we could translate as gone, gone, really gone, totally gone, hallelujah. <laughs> All right, so an homage to the awakened ones. The Diamond Sutra, or the Diamond Cutter Sutta, is Sutra is a bit harder to read. There's an excellent translation and commentary by Mu Sang, who's one of the scholars at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies that I would recommend. The, the Diamond Cutter Sutra bills, sort of like Bolero, you know, getting more and more intense until at the end it finally winds up with a verse that goes, Thus you should view this fleeting world, 
A star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. Can't get much better teaching on impermanence than that. Correct. Um, would that not be something that's permanent? It's everlasting to be awakened, to take awakening. Okay, if there's no one to enter nirvana, there's just awakening, <laughs> would the awakening be permanent and everlasting? This is sort of like trying to take the nirvana out of the samsara. It's trying to make it a a different thing. Whereas the awakening is a realization. It's seeing the world through the eyes of a Buddha. Seeing the world without the craving and clinging. But remember, the seeing reveals a seer who has a mind-body process that unfortunately wears out. So there are certainly teachings that can be found in Buddhism that wants to make nirvana uh, a separate place, something that has ontological existence, a permanent place, a heaven even. But what Nargajuna is saying is that, no, what's happening is that you need to see without the craving and clinging, which is what the Buddha is saying. So the realization of Nibbana is something that happens to a mind-body process. It's not an independent thing. And mind-body processes do wear out. So a realization of it basically ends when the realizer, who was revealed by the realizing, no longer exists. But, as Nagarjuna said, when the Buddhas are gone and their followers don't appear, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. So the potential for anyone to see what's really going on is always there. In other words... The reality is there aren't selves and there's nothing that can be clung to and kept, right? So the potential is always there. So in that sense, it's unchanging. But the realization has to happen to an individual. But individuals are not permanent. Does that make any sense? Right. Okay, so does the Buddha exist after death or not, or both, or neither? Or anyone who's awakened. Right. And the, the understanding of none of these apply is much like which way does the fire go when it goes out. I mean, this, the, the story is that uh, Vachagota comes to the Buddha and says, okay, 
does an awakened one exist after death or not or both or neither? And the Buddha says, I have not taught that. I have not taught that for all of the questions. And then Vachigoti goes, well, how am I supposed to understand this? And the Buddha says, build a little fire. And he builds a fire. Throw some sticks on it. How's it going? Oh, it's going good. Stop throwing sticks on it. How's it going? It's going out. Oh, it's gone out. Which way did it go? North, south, east, west, up, down, right? So the question about what happens to a Buddha, what happens to an entity when it ceases being an entity, assumes that there was an entity that could cease being an entity, right? So it's misunderstanding that when fires go out, they don't go anywhere. It's misunderstanding that the Buddha exists and then doesn't exist or does keep existing or both or neither. The whole idea of an existent entity is the mistake. It's all empty. Right. The deathless doesn't mean I get to live forever. (laughs) The deathless means there's not an eye around to die. Also, it's interesting that the word the deathless in the Brahmanism at the time of the Buddha also had the sense of timeless. So you might throw that into the mix while you're trying to think about it. Okay, it's way